You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, if you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Jeremiah chapter, uh, chapter 9. Jeremiah chapter 9 is where we're going to be today. And thanks for singing so well. It was just incredible to listen to you this morning. And um, I'm praying that God was honored by what he heard um, this morning. Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah chapter 9. And if you um, have just kind of stumbled into Stonegate, this is one of your first times. We are in a set of sermons that we're calling Issues. And, uh, and basically, it's a set of sermons where it's just giving us some space to talk about some things that we have wanted to talk about, but we just haven't been in texts that have lent itself to that. So we're going to be covering a, a really a wide range of issues. And I think that this morning may be, I think it will be the most important sermon, single sermon in this series, and maybe the most important that I'll do over the next year. I think this sermon is that important. And here's the issue that we're going to talk about today. Um, it's the issue of knowing God. Like, what I hope to create in this room is just a moment where all of us can really wrestle with this question this morning. Do I really know the Lord? Do I really know him? Like, not just know about him, but do I really know the Lord? That's the question that I'm hoping that the Holy Spirit will put in front of all of us this morning and will help us wrestle through. So with that in mind, Jeremiah chapter 9 is where we're going to go. So I want to read this text and make a few comments about it. So Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23. This should be up on the screen for you. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 and 24 says this. Thus says the Lord... Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things, in knowing me, in these things I delight, declares the Lord. This is the word of God. So here's the point of the morning, the point of this text. Here's the main thing I want you to to hopefully just receive from the Lord today and, and know this deep down in your soul. Here's the point of the text. The first thing I want to say this morning There is nothing more important than knowing God. I just want you to hear this again. There is nothing more important in your life than actually knowing the Lord. Nothing more important than that. I I love how J.I. Packer, he wrote a book called Knowing God. I'm going to give you a couple things out of it today. But um, in that book, in the third chapter, he starts the third chapter out like this by, by saying this, asking really a series of questions and then answering it. Question one, what are we made for? I mean, just think about that question. What are you made for? His answer, to know God. What should our aim be in life? What should we aim at? What what should be the trajectory that we're setting our life toward? Answer, to know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? Answer, to know God. He quotes John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And he just makes this observation. John 17, 3, Jesus is not just kind of giving a cute thing about what you should do in your life. He's defining the essence of what life is. The essence of life is knowing God. It's knowing God. What are we made for to know God? What should we aim at in our life to know God? What is eternal life that Jesus gives? It's to know God. What is the best thing in life? Bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else. Answer, knowing God. Then he quotes Jeremiah 9, the passage we just read. Knowing God is is where your heart is going to flourish. I'm just praying that the Lord would convince you today. That by being able to say yes to the question of I know God, that is where your heart's going to find its deepest satisfaction. So so he goes on. What what are we made for to know God? What should we aim at in life to know God? What is eternal life that Jesus gives? It's to know God. What is the best thing in life bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else? It's knowing God. Lastly, he says, what of all states does God look at when he sees man in and it gives God the most pleasure? 
What is the state in man that when God sees it, he delights in this. He loves to look at it. The answer, it's knowing God. Jeremiah is making the same point. Jeremiah is saying there's nothing more important in your life than knowing God. Nothing more important. And Jeremiah lays out some competitors. Wisdom is a good thing in the Bible. It's something to be pursued in the Bible. It's just not the main thing. Wisdom is worthless if you don't know God. Being strong is a good thing. The Bible even says it's of some profit in 1 Timothy 4. It's of some profit to be strong. So it's not that it's not a good thing to be strong. That's That's a fine thing. It's just not the greatest thing. It's not what you were made for. He goes on, he compares it to riches. Riches is a competitor for us. In the Bible, money is morally neutral. It's a, if you have it, great. If you don't, that's okay too. And, and, and he's just saying, Jeremiah's making it clear. It's just not the main thing. He's saying that the main thing, the most important thing, this is at the center of your life, the most important thing in your life. There's nothing more important in your life than knowing God. There's nothing more important in your life than knowing the most important being in the universe. There is nothing in your life more important than knowing the most important being in the universe, namely God himself. Paul agrees with this. If you remember in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul says it this way. He's going to say the exact same thing that Jeremiah is saying, just different language. When he says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul's saying this. If I stack every worldly thing up over here and I put knowing God over there, here's what I'm choosing every time knowing God. That if you get all of these things and you don't have the knowing God part, your life is worthless. In the end, all of these things will prove to be worthless to you. But if you have this thing that's of surpassing value and you have none of those things, you're going to be great in the end. It is well worth it. This is the thing of surpassing worth and value. Paul is saying the exact same thing that Jeremiah is saying. There is nothing more important in your life than knowing the most important being in the universe, namely God himself. Nothing is more important than that. Now, at the end of the day, this is what the entire Bible is about. This is one way to look at the entirety of the scripture. If you think about Genesis 1 and 2, here, here's the state you have our first parents in, Adam and Eve. They're in the garden. God's created them, put them in the garden. And listen, they know God, like tangibly, up close. He's not an abstract thought for them. They know God. They know him in Genesis 1 and 2. With their first sin in Genesis 3, um, in response to that sin, God kicks them out of the garden where they no longer know God. And the rest of the Bible is God opening up his mighty heart to his sons and daughters and bringing them back into this position of knowing him again. It's God opening up his mighty and kind heart, sending his son Jesus to live perfectly in our place, to die in our place, risen from the dead on the third day. The reason being is this so that we could be brought back into relationship with God where we can actually know God again. That's at the heart of what the entire Bible is about. It's God opening up his heart so that you can come back in and actually know God. This is what the entire Bible is about. Now, when you think about the good news of Jesus, this is what's at the heart of the good news of Jesus. This is how Peter puts it in 1 Peter 3.18. He says, yes, Christ suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous. So he lived for us. He died for us. He, he rose again. Now, why did he do that? Here's Peter's answer in 1 Peter 3.18. That he might bring us to God. That's the reason. See, at the heart of the good news of Jesus, this is at the heart of the good news. The heart of the good news, at the core of the good news, is not just that your sins have been forgiven. It's not just that God's wrath is no longer being stored up towards you. That the great part of the good news of Jesus is not that there is heaven waiting. At the heart of the good news of Jesus is this. You can have God. You can know God. That's what the good news of Jesus is about. It's about God opening up his heart, really reopening his heart, so that you can be brought in to know him. 
There is nothing more important in any one of our lives in this room than knowing the most important being in the universe. I like how one pastor described it. He used the illustration of a knot. Now, have you ever been in that moment where you're trying to untangle a knot? It's just a mess. You don't know where to grab it. You don't know which thread to pull on yet. And he, he compared it to a knot when you're just, you're grabbing everything and you're trying to jerk things and you're just making it worse half the time. You know that moment when you're dealing with a knot and that's happening? And then all of a sudden, you grab that knot in one place and you grab that one thread and when you grab it, that one thread, when you grab that one thread, the knot loosens up and it all comes apart. Do you know that moment? He says, now, now think about that moment, that, that one thread, that is the place of knowing God in the Christian life. It's of that sort of central importance. Maybe we could say it this way. If you know God, everything in the Christian life begins to work. If you don't know God, nothing in the Christian life works. It's that important. See, and, and this is where a lot of us in this room are this morning. God is asking hard obedience from us, and you know what? It's just not working. We just can't find it within ourselves to do it. And do you know why that is? It's because this one thread in our life has not been pulled. Knowing God. When, without knowing God, nothing lives. When we know God, everything begins to work in the Christian life. Like those hard moments of letting go of bitterness and resentment, actually forgiving, generosity begins to flow in our life. All of these hard moments of obedience that God asks us toward, they begin to actually work in our life when we know God, but without it, nothing works. Okay, now let me just stop at this point and just help you begin to wrestle with the question. Do you see life like this? That there's nothing more important in your life than knowing God. I mean, just think about, think about the next week of your life. What is going to be the most important thing in the next week of your life? Is it going to be closing this deal, getting this thing done, getting these projects done, having these... Con or is it knowing God? Now, this is not just like a trite question and a cute question for all of us to just kind of consider and go on about our life. It is showing us how in tune or out of tune we are with reality. That's what it's showing us. Are we in tune with the way things are or are we out of tune with it? And you know what I think that question does for a lot of us? It shows us that the way that we're thinking about life is crazy. Crazy. Because if, if I'm just guessing right now in this room and we think about what is the primary agenda for the next week of our life? That very few of us are down on our, on our knees just begging that God will help us know him more. We're just not there. And I'm just praying that, that even now the spirit of God would begin to convince you the most important thing in your life is that you would know the most important being in the universe, namely God himself. It's the most important thing. Now, let me make a distinction here. There are two ways of knowing God. If knowing God is the most important thing we can be about in our life, if it's the most important thing in our life, if knowing God, you know, knowing the, the biggest being in the universe, the greatest being in the universe is the most important thing, it's really important that we understand what knowing God means. And there's two ways to think about knowing God. Two, two ways to think about it. And let me just kind of work through these. We'll call one a knowing about, and the other is a knowing personally. That there is a way to know about God, and there is a way to know God personally. Let me read a quote from Jonathan Edwards, maybe America's greatest theologian, as he tries to explain this, this dynamic. He says it this way. This will be on the screen for you. He said, thus there is a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. You see what he says? There's two ways of, of knowing this about God. He says, there's a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. Then he uses an illustration. There's a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. 
A man may have the former that knows nothing about how, how sweet honey is, about how honey tastes. But a man can't have the latter unless he has an idea of the taste of honey in his mind. So there is a difference between believing that a person is beautiful and having a sense of his beauty. We, we, so traditionally, this is how we, we, I've borrowed Jonathan Edwards' illustration here on honey, and we've traditionally tried to, to kind of illustrate it like this. The two ways of knowing God. Imagine me coming up and we're talking about honey. And I, I just start talking to you about honey. I talk to you about the sweetness of honey. I talk to you about this rich golden kind of hue that, that honey has, this thick texture that honey has. And, and in one sense, after you hear me say that, you could say, I know honey. And it would be correct for you to say that. But it is a particular kind of knowing. You know about honey in that moment. You know the facts about honey. You know what you could know about honey if you looked on a page and it described honey. You know about it. But that is much different. That is a much different way of knowing about honey than the moment where honey actually hits your tongue. That knowing is much different than knowing about. Knowing about is what you can read on a page. Knowing personally is when what you know on a page lands on your heart and you have a realizing sense of it. Now you know what, what you knew all about, now you know it personally. Yeah. See, it used to be very abstract. I mean, you could kind of put it up there and talk about it and theorize about it, but it's all up there. But the moment when honey hits your tongue, now you know it down here. Now think about that in terms of how we can know God. There is a vast difference of knowing all of these things about God. There's a vast difference in that and actually knowing God. The difference is honey hitting the tongue. The difference is there has to be a moment. This is what personally knowing God is. It's the moment when we get out of theorizing and it actually lands on us. And what we know about, we actually have a realizing sense of. That is knowing God. Not knowing about him, but knowing personally and experientially. It's having that realizing sense. That's what we're going after. When we say that knowing God is the most important thing you could be about in your life. That there's nothing more important than you knowing God. There's nothing more important in your life than you knowing the most important being in the universe. We're not talking about you reciting theology about God. We're talking about the theology you know landing on your heart and you having a realizing sense of those things. We're talking about you knowing God personally, not abstractly. We're talking about you knowing God deep down here in you. Now, it's important that you kind of get a sense of the relationship between knowing about and knowing personally. Here's maybe a way to summarize it. To know God personally, you have to know God, you have to know about God. Like if you're ever going to know, you know God in a real personal, realizing sense sort of a way, you first have to know about God. But, hear this next one, you can know about God without ever knowing God personally. See, if you're going to know God personally, there are things about God you've got to know. But here's the danger. You can know all of these great things about God and never actually know God. Ne never actually have God. Ne ne never actually have God come in and invade your life in such a way where there is a personal knowing of him. Now, Jesus agrees with this, by the way. In Matthew 7, here's how Jesus says it. Jesus says it like this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, and listen to what Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, I want you to imagine the response of, of these guys for just a second. Uh, the people he's talking to in Matthew 7. Imagine their response. 
Here's what I imagine their response to be. In the moment where Jesus says, I never knew you, depart from me. Here's what I would anticipate their response being. Jesus, I did know you. Are you kidding me? I know all of these things about you. I know that you're good. I know that you're gracious. I know that you're wise. I know that you're kind. I know all of these things about you. I, I passed the theology exam. I got an A on it. I know you. I, I know all of the, I even told people about you. And the Lord's looking back at him and saying, you knew all of these things about, here, here's the part. You just never opened up your life and actually knew me. You just never knew me. You, you knew all of these great things about me. You just never had a moment where the honey hit your tongue. You never had the realizing sense. You always kept me at arm's length. You used all of your knowing to keep me over there, as strange as that is. And you never opened up your life to me and actually allowed me to come in and us have a personal knowing. It never happened. Here's, in essence, what Jesus is saying. And I am praying that this statement right here will, will wreck many of us in the room. Here's what Jesus is saying in, in Matthew 7. He's saying it's possible to really admire Jesus. I mean, really think well of Jesus. I mean, really like him. When you think about him, you like him. It's not that you hate him. I mean, you, you really admire, it's possible to really admire Jesus, to be busy in the Christian life, full of zeal for the mission of Jesus, and yet at the end of the day, just not know him. It is possible to really admire Jesus, to be busy in the Christian life, full of zeal for the mission of Jesus, and yet at the end of the day for Jesus to say, I just never knew you. You never opened up your life to me and allowed me to come in. It never happened. And hear me, what I'm about to say here. The wrong knowing about Jesus the wrong way of knowing, just knowing about and never personally that the wrong knowing is worthless in the end. In the end, it will not matter how much you knew about Jesus if you didn't actually know him. It won't matter. Now, let me clarify that knowing about Jesus is good. It's not that knowing about is bad. That, that is a good, right thing. The Bible actually says, pursue knowing me like that. But you've got to know about me. And, and in Jeremiah, the Lord even gives things that we should know about the Lord. He, he defines, he says, the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. Those are things we should know about God. So it, so it is a good thing to pursue knowledge about God. That's, that's part of, if you're actually knowing God personally, part of the fruit of knowing God personally is you're going to pursue knowing more about God. So that is a good thing. The, the Bible says pursue it. To borrow an illustration from a friend, I, if I were to start talking to you about my wife, and I said, you know, she is just incredible. She's got blonde hair, these gorgeous green eyes, and about that time she walks up, we're going to have a real problem because she has brown hair and brown eyes or whatever I've paid for the last hair coloring to be. <laughs> Either way, I'm in on it. I like it. But, but do you see the issue here? See, if we're saying, yes, I know God personally, but we're saying that he has blonde hair when he has brown hair, that's an issue. If, if we're looking at God and we're saying we know him personally, but we're just not seeing that his heart is righteousness and his heart is justice and his heart is steadfast love and we're calling him something different, there's a problem in that. So knowing about God is a great thing. But listen to me. Your heart was not designed to be satisfied with knowing about God. It was not it's, it's not made to be satisfied in that. You were hardwired not just to know about God, but to actually know God. And if all you have is knowledge about God, in the end, that knowledge will be worthless. Absolutely worthless. Now, here is the reason that this sermon made it into this set of sermons called Issues. The reason is because I think this issue 
is maybe the biggest issue in our culture when it comes to problems and how we relate to God. I would say it this way. In 15 years of doing kind of in the church work, just walking beside people who are trying to walk with God, this, this whole thing, in 15 years of doing that, it would seem to me that the majority of people who when you ask the question, are you a Christian? Do you know God? Who will just really quickly answer yes to that. It would seem to me that the majority of those people, when they are saying yes to it, know, are saying, I know about God, yet I don't really know God. And I'm inviting you in this moment, and me, by the way, to allow the Lord to, to examine that. The question I want you to wrestle with is, do I really know God? Not just about God, but like, do I really know God? If you are here this morning and you are investigating Jesus, you're asking questions, you're just trying to figure out, am I in on this thing or am I not? I think you live in one of the most dangerous places in the world to live to be considering those questions because what so often passes as knowing God in our culture is knowing about God. And the Lord is clarifying that sort of knowing, if it's all you have, is worthless in the end. It will, it will count as nothing in the end. What makes it or breaks it in the end, what biblical Christianity is, is not just knowing about him, but actually knowing him personally, experientially. Not, not abstractly, but like down here, realizing since I know God. That sort of knowing. And, and here is what I know, that even in a room like this, there are some, when you hear us, like me talk about that, like not just about him, but like experientially and personally knowing God, we, you don't even have a category for that. And it's almost frustrating because you don't even know what that is. And I just, I'm doing everything I can to convince you that this is normative Christianity. That's what it is. It's not like the super elite. It's like what it means to be a Christian and to walk with God. I listen to how the psalmists talk about their relationship with God. Look at the personal sort of ways it talks about it. Um, Psalm 42, verse 1 and 2. As a deer, pant, or as a deer uh, pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Does that seem like an abstract knowing about? No, it is a personal knowing of God. Psalm 63, 1. Oh God, you are my God. Not, not just their God or those people's God, but you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory, because, of your, because your steadfast love is better than life. That is not just a knowing about. That is a, a personally knowing. Your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Psalms 36, 8. Uh, they feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. Does that seem like a, an abstract kind of out there knowing of God? No, this is a... What it means to be a Christian is that you know God in a personal sense. Not about God, but experientially and personally. You know God like that. And I want to I just take a moment to encourage you in this and remind you, this is what God has made you for. God has not made you to make more money. He has not made you to grow in wisdom. He has not made you to get a better job. He's not, he has made you to know him. That's the reason that you're on this planet. It's the reason that God designed you. And let me press this one step further. God built your heart in such a way that until you make that the pursuit of your life, your heart will always be aching for more. God has preloaded your heart with a desire that is so big that only God can fill it. 
Your soul is a vast thing. It is so vast that the only thing big enough to satisfy it is the biggest thing in the universe, namely God himself. Now hear me. This is the reason that many of you have come in this room this morning and you're well-fed, you're well-loved, you're admired, you have what you need. And yet when you allow yourself, and a lot of us don't like to do this, but when we allow ourselves to slow down long enough to see our soul and to hear from our soul, we are baffled that it is still crying out for more. And the Bible's saying there's a reason for that. There's a reason for it. There's a reason that your soul isn't satisfied in you being well-loved, well-fed, well-taken care of, well-admired. It's because your soul was made to know God. And until it knows God, it is going to be screaming every single day for that. You're made for it. This is the way God has designed you and me and us. It's to know God. Why do we need to know God in this sort of a personal, experiential way? Why is that? Let me give you two reasons. Why do we need to know God, not just about God, but personally know God? Why do we need that? Two reasons. Reason number one, this is what it means to become a Christian. This is what it means to actually be adopted into the family of God, for God to save you and rescue you and redeem you, for you to throw your hands up and and to bring the only thing you need, which is your need to God, to open up your hands in faith and say, God, rescue me. This is what it means to do that. See, the greatest myth in our culture is that God saves you because you agree with a few facts about God. God does not save anyone because you agree with a few facts. The demons, the Bible says, agree with the facts about God. In the New Testament, the demons have the best theology of anyone, even the disciples. It is not, saving faith has to have facts there. You you have to know facts. You have to know these things about God. But knowing those facts does not save anyone. It's when those facts come into your soul and you get a realizing sense of them, that's God saving a person. It's the greatest myth in our culture that you can just agree with a few things about God. I I know that Jesus lived perfectly. He died on a cross, rose from the dead. I agree with those things. Surely, That does not mean that you're right with God. It is the moment that the Holy Spirit applies what Jesus has accomplished in your heart personally, that's becoming a Christian. I love how Ed Stetzer put this, author, works for Lifeway. He says, Bible Belt people need to be saved from their salvation and come to Jesus. They need to be saved from their salvation, false salvation that is, agreeing with some facts about God. They need to be saved from their salvation and actually open up their heart and actually come to Jesus and get saved. And I'm just wondering how many of us is that? That that, that the Lord would look at us right now and say, you just need to be saved from your false salvation and you actually need to come to me now. What what does it mean to to believe in Jesus? I I just don't think there's a better place to see this than John 6.35 in the Bible. We talked about this a few weeks ago. John 6.35 says it like this. This is Jesus talking. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So what does it mean to believe in Jesus? If it doesn't just mean that we agree with these facts, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? I think John 6.35 is a great place to see what it means to actually put your faith in Jesus. It means that you lay down all of your righteousness, You you lay down all of your attempts to save yourself and you, you open up your hands to God and in faith you come to him as the being in the universe that can satisfy your deepest longings. You you come to him as the one that can satisfy the, the craving in your soul. We, we used the illustration like this a few weeks ago. Picture the person that's been lost in a desert for four days without water and they're about to thirst to death. 
I mean, they are, they are minutes away from being dead. And all of a sudden, they break into a clearing, and there's the stream, and they stumble into it, and they take their first drink of water in four days. That's becoming a Christian. It's, it's knowing God like that. It's that moment when all of these things we know about God, yes, he'll satisfy my soul. Yes, he's the bread of life. Yes, he's this. Yes, he's, he's all of these things. And it's the moment when we get our face buried in the stream and we drink for the first time. That's the moment of conversion for a human being. See, if, if all you're banking on is knowing some facts about God, in the end, that is going to be worthless when you one day stand before him. But if you know God, if you've, if you've walked and you've come to Jesus like that, that's the knowing that in that day of standing before God, you will be completely covered in the righteousness of Jesus. So we have to know God like this because we need it to become a Christian. Secondly, we need it to live well for Jesus as a Christian. If you don't have a personal knowing of God, it is virtually impossible to live well as a Christian. And let me tell you why that is. Here's the reason. The reason is because you know your sin and your suffering personally and experientially. See, sin in your life is not an abstract concept. Suffering in your life right now is not an abstract theory. It is down here right now and you taste it when you wake up. That sin and that suffering. It is not an abstract theory in your life. It is a realized issue in your life. You know it personally. You know it experientially. You taste it daily. Sin and suffering. And the only way we will ever be people who fight against sin and endure suffering well is for us to know Jesus experientially and personally better than we do our sin and suffering. That is the only way we'll ever fight sin and endure suffering well is for us to know Jesus in a deeper way than we know our sin and suffering. That is the only hope for living well in the Christian life. And can I tell you why? Obedience to Jesus is hard. Can we all just say yes to that? It's hard. And in this room, if we just looked at the various issues where right now in this room, God is asking hard obedience right now in your life, like doing what Jesus would want is just difficult. It's so scary. It's, hard. it's all of those things. Do you know what obedience, especially hard obedience, actually requires? Trust in Jesus. And do you, like, hear me on this. You will never trust an abstract Jesus that you just know a few facts about. In the hard areas of your life, you won't do it. In the hard areas of my life, I will not obey if I don't have a realized sense of Jesus. Because a personal Jesus is the only Jesus that at the end of the day begs our trust. See, it actually requires trust that in the hard moments of obedience where we can't even see how it could ever end correctly, that, that we're gonna actually take this step of obedience. The only way you'll ever do that is to trust that Jesus, that you know personally, has said it's gonna be okay when you take this step, that you can't see, you don't have any idea how it's gonna turn out. It seems like you're wrecking your life to take that step of obedience. And Jesus is saying, trust me, it's gonna be okay. And the only way you'll ever take that step is for Jesus to be personal and real enough to you that you can actually trust him in that moment. See, our obedience is not an issue of willpower. It's not an issue of any of those. It's an issue of trust. Is Jesus in this moment trustworthy or not? What he is saying, can I trust him to follow through and meet me there or not? And the only way you'll ever obey in that moment is for you to get beyond facts about Jesus and knowing about Jesus and actually know him. Like he's a friend of yours. Like you talk to him. Like he speaks to you. You live with him. That sort of knowing. And do you know how strange that sort of knowing is among us? 
I was thinking this week of, of Paul and how, you know, when I read the New Testament, I mean, Paul is just like one of those guys, I'm like, how do you even do that? I mean, how do you get thrown in prison, you know, beaten to within an inch of your life, and you find that he's singing in prison and people are getting sick? How do you do that? What is wrong with this man? Can, can I tell you how you do that? It's by actually knowing God. And it, I was thinking about this verse in Galatians chapter 2 this week. It's a very familiar verse where Paul says, you know, I, you know, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And then here's the last couple of phrases. Who loved me and gave himself for me. Not for those people over there. Not for that person over here. Not for my friend. Not for my you know, co-worker, Paul says, he loved me. I, Paul actually believes that Jesus loves him. He loved me and he gave himself for me. Do you know how strange it is to hear people talk that personally about God? We are so comfortable saying, God loves us and maybe me. Do you know how strange it is to hear among us? And this is me. I'm putting myself in this category. How strange it is to hear us talk like this, that God loves me. He gave himself for me. Like not just, but me. I, I know him like that. See, it's not until we know God like that that we'll ever endure suffering correctly. That we'll ever obey in the hard moments. I was reading this moment in uh, Knowing God, J.I. Packer's book that I mentioned earlier, where he was talking about this moment of walking beside a friend of his who had spent his whole life trying to work up in kind of the academic church circles. So he spent his whole life studying for this, trying to work his way up for this, and he gets into a conflict with the powers that be over what is the good news of grace, what, what is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they totally cut him out of the whole thing. In that moment of disagreeing, he loses everything his life has been building toward. Everything he's wanted, he's just lost in that moment. And just put yourself in his shoes. Have you ever been in that moment where everything you've been doing, everything you're wanting, you just don't get it? It just doesn't happen. That moment just happened for him. And in passing, he's, he's walking with, with J.I. Packer. They're, they're out for a walk, and he says this in passing. They recount the story. He's just lost everything. And the guy says, but you know, in the end, it doesn't matter because I know God. The only, the only way we'll ever go through life open-handed, I can have this, I cannot have it. I can, I can take this, I cannot take this. The only way we will go through life fighting sin and enduring suffering well is for us to know God like that. Like Paul to be able to say, here's what's of surpassing greatness. It's knowing Jesus. And as long as I know him, it doesn't matter what else I do and don't have. Because he makes up for all the difference. He's that good. So how do you know where you are? This morning, how, how do you know personally where you are in all this? Let me give you a couple of things to maybe think about with this, and then uh, we'll, we'll begin to kind of land the plane here. H how do you know where you are? Uh, my friend Ray Ortland, he gave a helpful grid to, I think, kind of look at this through. So these are going to be on the screen for you. Just take a look at, at how he put it. He said it this way. Here, here's how you know. Are, are you like, is it a personal knowing? Is it an abstract knowing about? What is it? Is it a theoretical knowing? Or do you have like this realizing sense of like, I know God. I know him. He says it this way. Here's a personal knowing. His love for me moves my soul. Here's a knowing about. He is a guilt-inducing burden for my soul. Here's a personal knowing. Prayer is where I find him. It's where I get to know him. I love talking to him. To, to knowing about, prayer is optional and boring. A personal knowing, I actually need him constantly. 
And it's not a comfortable need. It's, it's an uncomfortable need. I, but I need him constantly. Knowing about, I get by on my own. A personal knowing, I feel sinful. And at the same time, I feel so forgiven and loved in Jesus. Knowing about, I just, I just don't really feel that bad. A personal knowing, the Bible reads like my world, like it's talking to me. Knowing about, the Bible reads like ancient history. A personal knowing, I feel inadequate, but yet at the same time so supported in Jesus. Knowing about, I feel self-assured and entitled. A personal knowing, I'm expendable for the Lord. Knowing about, he kind of fits into the margins of my life, kind of wherever I'll let him in, that's where he fits. A personal knowing is moment by moment with Jesus. Knowing about is Sunday morning only with Jesus. A personal knowing, crisis pulls me toward Jesus. A knowing about, crisis drives me to doubt. A personal knowing, I have peace in the midst of craziness. Knowing about, my circumstances define me. A personal knowing, I'm fine with him being in control. Like, like he actually has the reins of my life, calls the shot. I'm good with that. Knowing about, I have to be in control, setting the terms. God, if you want, if you want me, you've you got to come like this. Here are the lines with what you can and can't do in my life. And I just wonder where you are in that. That knowing about the Lord or actually knowing the Lord. And lastly, where do we go from here? And I'll finish with this. There are really two options that every one of us have in this room this morning. Option number one goes like this. We can stay in our knowing about God and just have one more sermon under our knowing about God belt that one day we'll be held accountable to. We can stay there. We, we can, we can kind of keep God at arm's length with our knowing about him. Never opening, never opening up to the Lord, never, never being vulnerable before the Lord, never asking him to come inside and take up a rest. We'll just keep him at arm's length knowing about. That's one option. And I'm just begging you, don't do that. I'm just begging. Your soul is made for more than that. You're going to constantly have this hungry soul that's going to be screaming at you every day when you wake up. That, that's one option. Keeping God at arm length by knowing the facts. Here's the other option. Today, you can open up your heart to the Lord and you can plead with the Lord. You can say to the Lord right now, more than anything, more than my next breath, I want to know you. I, I, I don't want just to know about you. I want to know you, whatever it takes, whatever you have to do to help me know you, that's what I want. I am wide open. God, you do whatever it takes to help me know you personally, experientially, down here in my heart. God, I am wide open to that. And if you'll do that, I can't help but believe the Lord this morning will start that journey with you. Now, if I'm just addressing why I think people in this room will go with option one as opposed to option two, why it is that we'll keep God at arm's length and not just open up our life and say, God, come on in. I want to know you like this. Here's the reason I would give you. I think it's because we're fearful. And honestly, I can relate to that. As I've just worked through this sermon this week, I have felt parts of me in my heart that I'm like, God, I want to let you into these places, into these areas. And when I say that, at the same time, I feel scared to death as it, as in regards to what that's going to mean. Like, what is he going to do if he gets down there? Like, what's he going to ask from me? What's going to happen when, when that goes down? That's terrifying. It is, there is a reason why C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia pictures Jesus as a lion. Because he is terrifying. That's the reason. Because it actually is scary. That's the reason. And there's this one moment in one of the, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia books where Jill, this is the story that he's, you know, in the middle of in that point, where Jill has been trapped in a forest. She is about to die of thirst. And she finally breaks out of this forest and, and, and into this clearing. And in the middle of that clearing, she sees what she's wanted. There's a stream in the middle of that clearing. She's about to die of thirst. There's the stream, and here's the problem. Aslan, the lion, 
is laying down right beside the stream. Now, do you see the picture here? This is John 6 playing out. Like everything she needs is right there to satisfy her soul, but it's so scary because Jesus is there, and to get her soul satisfied, she's got to deal with the lion. Now, listen to how the story goes, and we're done. Are you thirsty, said the lion? I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I really do that? Would would you mind? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill? The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise... Will you promise not to do anything to me if I, if I come, said Jill? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls? She asked. I have swallowed up girls and boys, men, women and men. Kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say that as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming a step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.